0: Live. Mark Edge, Free Talk Live, coming to you from Freedom Fest here. I've got David DeLugas, Executive Director of Parents USA. So, uh, David, this is one of the issues that's near and dear to me, is parents being able to uh, you know, educate their kids, raise their kids the way they want. Because it seems to me that, you know, well, government bureaucrats have put together the government education system. This is the same education system that kicks out uh, 20% functionally illiterate graduates. I'm not talking about the people who don't make it through their system. And by the way, their dropout rate is tremendously higher than the dropout rate from homeschooling and uh, private school organizations. They're far more represented in the prison system. Like every form of failure... That can be measured, the government system uh, manages to way outshine any other form of uh, education. These are the same people that suggest that somehow I am not capable of raising my kid. They who fail at every turn, there 's not one that they succeed at. they 're the one they fail at every turn. They suggest that i 'm not able to raise my kid.
1: Oh, well, you're absolutely right, Mark. The real problem in our society is government is out of control, it's too large, and it's obviously ineffective, inefficient, and doesn't do a good job at what they're supposed to do. If we go back to the Constitution, the limits of government are well ingrained in our Constitution, and yet politicians, because of the money, the power, the prestige, just their egos, continually grow our government. And they intrude in every possible way, excusing it as if, well, but we're doing it for your own good. Too many of our population are willing to allow government to interfere because perhaps they just don't feel capable of running their own lives. So they allow government to run their own lives, which for them, maybe that's a fine, but don't make that choice for you, your family, or for me. And that's where Parent USA really launched. Uh, because I, as an attorney, observed how frequently our government micromanages every aspect of parenting. In the family courts, judges will tell parents what they can and cannot do in ways that are completely unrelated to their task in, a say, a divorce case, custody case of that nature. But you're right about education, but it extends to everything. Parents USA provides legal services pro bono. We're in 501c3, and we are relying on donations. That said, we provide pro bono legal services to parents in situations where the constitutional rights of parents are infringed upon. So what does that mean? Well, the Supreme Court, the final arbiter of our laws, has ruled consistently that it is a fundamental right that parents have to raise their children as they choose so long as they don't cause actual harm to their children. Now, the Supreme Court hasn't completely defined actual harm, but it's physical harm or long-term emotional harm. But to illustrate, we're currently representing a mom who lives in North Georgia who one day during the pandemic, when all of her kids were at home from school, went to work for a few hours, and her 14-year-old daughter was put in charge of all of the other children. Well, the 14-year-old had online schooling and momentarily was distracted, and the 4-year-old left the house and went next door, and the next-door neighbor, rather than escorting the child back to his home, called the sheriff's office. Well, they showed up later. Everything worked out that day, but a week later they came back with an arrest warrant, charged her with criminal reckless conduct. That statute in Georgia was declared unconstitutional as applied to a parent in a similar situation in 1997, but this is representative of what people in law enforcement, prosecutors' offices can do. They can do whatever they want, and that presumption of innocence, that only applies in the courtroom when you're being tried. Now, there's a fabulous legal commentator, Clark Neely, with the Cato Institute, who refers to the term as plea coercion. Police will often overcharge or the prosecutors will often overcharge a particular set of facts that presumably could be found to be a crime such as we're going to charge you with armed robbery but maybe it was shoplifting but you had a pocket knife in your pants. And then when it comes time to try it, go to trial you're facing 20 years in prison if you're found guilty. But they offer you a plea deal of a year of probation, a $500 fine. And pretty much anybody, unless they're just a gambler, is going to accept that plea deal. Well, that was offered here, too. The mom, in our case, was offered a plea deal where if she were to plead guilty, go to a parenting class, pay a fine, and agree that her children could not babysit one another or care for one another, that it could only be an adult, unlike every other family in the entire state of Georgia and nationally, only an adult could look after her kids, they would let this charge go, go. Thankfully, Melissa Henderson is courageous enough to allow us to defend her, and we're going to take it through trial if we have to, but I did file a motion to quash the accusation against her, the criminal charges, and the judge has candidly sat on that motion for over a year now. That judge heard us argue orally on July 1 of 2021. The briefing has been completed and he has yet to rule. Again, a representation of our judicial system, government overreach, and what does the ordinary citizen do in response? Well, they either succumb or they find legal help, and hopefully that legal help understands the nuances of these constitutional rights principles. Because, again, it's not what Parents USA believes is the right of parents. It's what the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled time and time again consistently. So, I mean,
0: most of these cops, I'm presuming, um, at least their superiors, are my age. 51 um, is how old I am. And um, the idea of a 14-year-old babysitting uh, a 4-year-old isn't new. It's not like these people have been confronted with, dear God, what this is a this is an innovation in parenting. This is a new step out, like in any of this stuff. That's it's of course I was uh, babysat by fourteen year olds. They were probably younger than that. I have no idea how old those older gals that babysat me when I was you know those kind of ages were. Um, But uh, anytime you know like. Obviously, parenting isn't a perfect thing. It hasn't been for the entire length of the species, and it isn't now. And it's unfortunate that the kid walked next door and knock knock hi. I just want to say hi, um, or whatever the kid did. But um, you know, that's not a reason that uh, a parent should be treated badly. So it's uh, uh, these cops that are enforcing this stuff. They, they're the you know the, the tip of the spear of the state. Do what are they doing? Are they covering their butt? Are they? They're not evil, presumably. I mean, I hope they're not evil. That would be, let's hope that the the police forces of America aren't populated by evil people that want to see the state uh, take care of other people's kids because somehow they're better at it. I just don't understand. What is their
1: motivation? Well, on a general level, I would say that police, like a lot of people who are given authority, believe that if they say something, you should comply. It's, I said it, it's my view, you must comply. In this particular case, we now suspect that the deputy who sought the arrest warrant that a magistrate judge signed, which judges, frankly, signed pretty much anything that's put in front of them uh, is, as far as an arrest warrant application, and affidavit, a ye- about a year earlier, met with the mom after her children were out in the yard playing And somebody called and said, hey, those kids are kind of out in the yard playing close to the road. Oh, my gosh. By the way, it's a cul-de-sac. It's a small area. It's rural Georgia. They were not in danger. But even so, police officer, a deputy showed up and told the mom, don't do that anymore. And he's the one that sought the arrest warrant. It's my belief that like a lot of those in power, he just simply... This was retaliation. You didn't listen to me. I told you not to do this, and yet you did it anyway. And retaliation is within those types of deprivations of civil liberties that law enforcement are not allowed to do.
0: So where would people who need you or want to help or in whatever way find Parents USA? Uh,
1: Our website URL is parentsusa.org. We're also on social media, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, uh Facebook and Instagram and we sh- and YouTube we have a new YouTube channel as well
0: Mark Edge for Free Talk Live coming to you from Freedom Fest this is the first day and it is a big exciting event. I love Freedom Fest. I love being here. I love the crowd. And right now I'm sitting with uh, Dan McKnight from Bring Our Troops Home. Dan, t- uh, tell me about who you are and why you wanted to create an organization called Bring Our Troops Home.
2: Sure. Um, I'm a 13-year veteran of the United States military. I served in the Marines and the Army and the Idaho Army National Guard, and I served in Afghanistan. I re-enlisted to go to war after 9-11, uh, wanting blood. And uh, I spent 18 months there, came home injured, left the military, and went underground for about 10 years and was just angry and and mad. And when my best friend went back for his eighth combat deployment in the National Guard, I decided to do something about it. And I had a previous relationship with Jim Risch, who was our governor. And Jim Risch had just become the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the second most powerful man in foreign policy. Governor of where? He was the governor of Idaho. Now he's a senator from Idaho. And I thought I had an opportunity to to reach out to Jim Risch and maybe affect foreign policy And so I questioned him on what he could do to end the war in Afghanistan and Iraq and reclaim Congress's authority to declare war and take it back from the president. And he said, uh, Dan, I'm with you. I'm done with nation building. And I thought, my God, I just changed U.S. foreign policy uh, after 80 years. And then he went back to Washington, D.C. and voted three times in the next 90 days to extend the war in Yemen and Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. And so we started a veterans organization, mostly made up of combat veterans from the global war on terror that are trying to get Congress to reclaim their authority um, over the executive branch. And we decided after dealing with Lindsey Graham and Liz Cheney and Jim Risch that they're a lost cause too. And we've now taken our fight back to the states and we're using the 10th Amendment uh, to have states reclaim their control over their militia.
0: So um, it it is amazing how many uh, National Guard guys ended up uh, over and over again. You said eight deployments with the National Guard. And that's stunning to me. Um, These are not regular Army. These are guys that signed up to do weekends and, you know, two weeks a year, you know, maybe handle floods or whatever, and they're going over there and fighting. Um, I could see what might have motivated you, but is there anything specific? Certainly. So uh, the National Guard, we are, they are among the best-trained military
2: in, in the United States. They have all the best equipment, the best training, um, but you're right. They are citizen soldiers, and so when they deployed a war, they leave behind a family and a job, business owners, their first responders, policemen, construction, tradesmen, mechanics. And when they leave, that creates a vacuum in the communities. And when they go over and over and over again, it creates this heavy burden on their own community, their own homes. And uh, most of them come home broken. They come home with uh, you know, some mental scars from the war. They come home to broken families and foreclosed homes and broken businesses. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. The National Guard has three purposes. In 1906, they were codified as the organized militia and their purpose is to enforce the laws of the union to repel an invasion and to put down an insurrection and a declaration of war from congress becomes the law of the union and so that's the only authority that gives the national guard the ability to go fight in these foreign wars so absent a dec- declaration of war the national guard shouldn't be deploying overseas to fight in these wars
0: and uh, is that your uh, like the, the sum total of it is it about national guard or is it um, you know wars in general i mean i guess when i think about you know wars in us history i think about some that are lesser and more um, sort of necessary. So, I mean, probably your most necessary war, if you talk to somebody, might have been the Revolutionary War. I can make arguments against it, uh, but I can make arguments for it too. Um, World War II has gotten incredible press. Uh, Tom Hanks is, you know, a, r- a real talent, and he's just a, a fan of, uh, you know, that time frame. And he's kind of built the mystique around World War II and what it was. In um, his, Is Bring Our Troops Home just a anti-war organization and if so why and what, what are your thoughts on that
2: that's a great question and it, it, you have to split some hairs here anybody that's been to war is naturally going to be anti-war however we're not so nice
0: one would hope that everyone was right like if you're willing to sacrifice other people's kids to whatever your freaking cause is one would hope that you start from the point that we would rather not fight we'd rather not blow off people's limbs that we only do it because we have to
2: Someone should share that message with Liz and Dick Cheney. I don't think anybody has yet. But when we come home from war, we're not so naive to know that there aren't American interests that have to be defended. But we have a mechanism for that, right? The representatives of the people should be the ones that send the military off to war. And then the commander-in-chief, the president, controls the military at that point. But absent the approval and the declaration from the representatives of the people, the military as a whole, not just the National Guard, but the United States military, should not be going and engaging in these undeclared and endless and unnecessary wars.
0: I agree with you completely. Um, now, what about, one of the things that I think of is the, uh, the problems of kind of in, insertions, like when, going to get Osama bin Laden. Um, when they went into Pakistan to get Osama bin Laden, they uh, had to do, they weren't going to ask Congress whether that was a good idea or something like that. So let's just take that in a vacuum, that kind of idea. What about the president moving, say, special forces troops and, and that kind of thing?
2: So we have
0: a mechanism for that.
2: We have the War Powers Act of 1972 or 73, which gives the president the ability to respond to immediate threats. But he has rules that he has to follow. He has to report back to Congress within 30 days. And then he has 90 days to withdraw those troops. And he must report to Congress. They've never done that. The War Powers Act has never been challenged in the Supreme Court. It's just been ignored. And so, yes, I think the president should have the ability to defend American interests. But there are mechanisms and there are rules. We are a society of rules and laws. And without uh, following those and adhering to the most important that include sending people's sons and daughters off to die, um, then what kind of society do we have?
0: One of the things in the writing of the Constitution, we'll note that the, uh, the army is not funded. Um, you know, the Navy is part of the Constitution. It says we need a Navy, uh, but it doesn't say we need an army. And this is kind of an interesting point, is, is that the the founders, it appeared what they were trying to say was is we'll raise an army when we need an army, but we're not going to keep an army, a standing army. And if we do, it's just professionals, sergeants, um, you know, some officers and things like that. And if we need to go, uh, rally for war like, um, Pershing did in, uh, world war one, he, you know, that he was given a year to ramp up. He said he wanted a million troops, um, you know, on the ground. I don't think he ever got that. But, um, in, anyway, uh, you know, the, the idea was, is that you, you know, rallied for it, but that's kind of an old idea. I, I don't know. What do you think?
2: Uh, it, the standing army definitely is not part of the Constitution. There's no doubt about that. And it was it an oversight by the founding fathers? I don't think so. I think <laughs> I think they had it right. I think they de- deliberated. I think they debated it. I think they discussed it. And they lived and saw what a standing army did to people's liberties and freedom. The cost of a standing military is one that we have as a, a society has a, we've accepted it. But now the military is being used for all kinds of. Experiments, Red flag laws and gender identity and all these things that really aren't should be part of the military. The military should be for the defense of America and America's interests, period. And so a standing army does create all kinds of standing problems. Um, and from a sound fiscal policy, uh, we know that the military is the biggest suck of, of, of useless, wasted dollars that, in our budget.
0: It is highly inefficient, and I would agree with you is, is that somehow the military has sort of gotten been inserted into this whole woke conversation and uh, look i 'm not i 'm not the strongest on one way or the other i 'll admit to being fifty one years old and a little confused by the whole thing, but you know like i but I don't think that anybody's tax dollars, if you're you know, a good Christian and you feel very strongly on the trans issue or God knows what other the issues we might be talking about here, your tax dollars shouldn't be used to promote this particular uh, philosophy. And uh, I don't think the military is the place for these sorts of things, but it certainly has become that.
2: It has, and the military, should, like I said, should be for one thing, training and, and equipping and preparing for the defense of America. There should be no culture in the military other than, than that. And
0: Where can people go find out more about Bring Our Troops Home?
2: Yep. BringOurTroopsHome.us is our organization's website. Our sponsor legislation that we're pushing in the States is DefendTheGuard.us, and if you want to become a donor and a supporter, it's The107Club.com.
0: Do you feel like your country no longer holds your values? Mark Edge, Free Talk Live, here at Freedom Fest. I've got with me Caitlin Bailey from Old Pros, and uh, it took me a little while to figure out what you guys do over there, Caitlin, but apparently you are advocates for sex workers.
3: Correct, yeah, we are advocating for the decriminalization of sex work. And specifically at Old Pros, we are trying to create the conditions to change the status of sex workers in society.
0: So tell me what the status is that you imagine. I mean, uh, sex workers have been around a long time. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they, uh, they they've been on the wrong end of uh, the legislative stuff.
3: Yeah, we've been really wrong about the oldest profession for a really long time. And so the future we imagine is that the sex workers that are already members of our community can be uh, free to contribute, right? Their wisdom, uh, their talents, right? Sex workers are already excellent moms, excellent partners, um, excellent business associates, great neighbors. But because of the stigma, the shame and the criminalization, we often have to operate in the shadows, which really disempowers us, right? We can't report crimes committed against us. We we can't report domestic abusers we can't report rapists we can't report the serial predators right that that target us um, and we this disempowers us and it makes us less free as a society because what we're seeing is that the tools that we've built to combat sex work right to target prosti- consensual adult prostitution is now being used to broadly censor the internet to broadly censor the freedom of movement freedom of expression of all of us
0: one of the things that deeply concerns me, because I do, you know, like, if, if you don't think that you sell your body every day um, and that uh, you spend time, you know, your, t- your time in your body is what you sell, whether, whether you're, you know, doing sex work or doing any work.
3: Yeah, I will absolutely say, having done prostitution and also political fundraising, my preference is to be paid up front.
0: <laughs> That's very clever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I so when I uh, think about this stuff, I I obviously support these people, and I want them to be able to live their lives. I don't know much about their lives. I can't say that I've uh, participated. Of course, I'm supposed to say that. Um, everybody does. And <laughs> what is it? Why is it that they want to use? Because uh, it it seems like when you talk about prostitution, everybody runs to uh, human trafficking, and I don't know what to do about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is part of a long pattern, right, of using moral panics to erode liberty, right? And this goes way back, right? The first federal anti prostitution law in this country was called the White Slave Act or the Mann Act of 1910. And so there was this, you know, uh, frankly, panic, right, that swept the country that, like, immigrants were kidnapping white women and selling them into sex slavery. And historians and academics agree that that was never uh, the recruitment method of choice. There have always been too many volunteers for kidnapping to be a a big part of the process. There is absolutely violence and exploitation that happens within the sex industry. But all of that is a direct result of prohibition. We know what prohibition does to markets. It doesn't make them safer. But now we're using the moral panic of human trafficking, right? And we're seeing that already expand, right? We're talking about abortion traffickers, right, which is voluntary adult women choosing to cross state lines in order to seek a medical procedure that's legal in one state and isn't in another. But we're using the word trafficking, right, to, uh, to broadly censor the internet, right? Back in 2018, uh, when SESTA-FOSTA was passed into law, this is when Backpage was removed. This is when Craigslist Erotic Services was shut down, right? We created an exception to Article 230, and we can already see that being expanded to broadly censor things that the government doesn't like. So these moral panics, right, the satanic panic of the 1980s it uh we get folks wrapped up in a fervor about a problem that isn't really happening and then we pass all of these laws that result in real harm and prostitution and the conflation of adult consensual sex work with the horrible crime of human trafficking is no exception but all of the laws that we've passed have made it harder to identify and to help victims of violence and exploitation
0: yeah it seemed, It does seem to me that if prostitution were legal on a first off uh, you know the federal government has no business making a law on this anyway. Read the constitution i don 't care what your opinion is on prostitution. this is an issue of law, and they simply have no business doing that now. One could make the argument that a state does have the business of doing it, and my argument on that would be that um, in fact. The, if there were more prostitutes that were able to function legally, advertise, and you know what, I'll even concede that maybe there should be some regulation on the advertising, what, not should, but I'll, I would concede that, okay, go ahead and regulate some advertising, whatever that might be, um, then what you would see is fewer Of these people that were trafficked from foreign countries, presumably, or whatever way, kidnapped and forced into this labor because there would be enough people that could do this job and that they could report crimes against them and and be protected in the workplace like anybody else.
3: You're 100% true. That's a, that's 100% correct. And we even see that. New Zealand decriminalized prostitution in 2003 and has had incredibly positive results, right? The STI rate has plummeted. Violence against women has dropped. Reported rapes have gone down. Uh, and also, sex workers are more comfortable uh, reporting crimes committed to uh, against them to the police, right?
0: What about mental health? I've heard that men's mental health um, is often positively affected by legal prostitution.
3: I, I can I, I'm sure that that is true. And I will also say that it improves providers mental health when they're able to pay their bills without risk of fearing arrest. It is impossible to help people that you are trying to hunt.
0: So um, how do people you know, I, I know you're doing some stuff. How do people get a hold get a hold of you and find out more? I mean, it's fascinating stuff we could go on about the business for a long time. I have a very limited time. Hey, Caitlin, thank you.
3: Yeah, no, this is a really big issue that impacts so much, and we do a deep dive on it at Old Pros. So you can learn more about our work, sign up for our newsletter at oldprosonline.org. I run a podcast called The Oldest Profession Podcast, where we do a deep dive into a different sex worker from history every week. And I think that understanding the the legacy of sex work, right, and how, how old and deep and important this has been to everyone, Every society on the face of Earth for all of human history is really important to recognizing the sex workers that are already members of our community.
0: Yeah, uh, this is something that's whitewashed from the Judeo-Christian uh, you know thing out there. Uh, the whole society is is that in fact so many priestesses um, inside of this. Um, and probably priests too I don't know I mean I, <laughs> showing my bias
3: people of all genders have always participated in this work on both ends of it um, but what we did to Mary Magdalene I think was awful and I think that horphobia has really cost us quite a bit as a culture we continue to erase the intellectual contributions not just of people who have engaged in this work but people who have been accused of, being, of engaging in this work
0: so it was my understanding Mary Magdalene uh, is just confusion that she was never, uh, never even accused of being a prostitute
3: not until 500 uh, something when one especially misogynistic Pope conflated her with uh, with several other characters in the Bible which I understand there are a lot of Mary's uh, but yes he erroneously accused her of having participated in sex work and then they used that as a justification to create a church that literally didn't allow women to talk for over a thousand years which is bananas since you know according to gospel Mary Magdalene was the first Christian the first Christian preacher right the first witness to the resurrection but but because some dumb dude got his history and could, you know, his reading comprehension was off 600 years later, we're missing out on a hugely important contribution to the gospel. And this is what I mean, right? By freeing sex workers, right? Because even if you have participated in this work, you ought to be able to lend your wisdom, your expertise, and your talents to the communities that you're in. But we are really prevented from doing that by so many systems.
0: So many religions, including ones that were in um, Israel, uh, You know, they had rites that were sexual that went on in, inside of temples, and there was money exchanged hands as donations or whatever. Um, I mean, prostitution has been a part of you know, just business and religion and all these things for a very long time.
3: Yes, the, uh, the church, the uh, brothel, and the theater all have a common ancestor, and that's the temple, right? And so the origin story of prostitution are really the priestess prostitutes that were doing sort of religious rites out of the Temple of Ishtar in Mesa, uh, Mesopotamia. So, yeah, I think this is important history, but sex workers were originally incredibly high-status uh, healers, decision-makers, priestesses in their own right at a time when the temple was the major organizing force in society
0: yeah and you can pick whatever society you want this is a
3: pattern we, a pattern we see on every continent yes
0: and um yeah so i want to listen to your podcast i'm already <laughs> interested i like history um and uh want to find more out about it. who doesn't want to hear about more about sex workers please tell me about it again one more time
3: sure uh you can find everything you're looking for at old i really encourage folks to sign up for our newsletter we send one out every friday it's a roundup of sex worker rights related news and why it matters
0: Mark Edge, Freedom Fest, here for Free Talk Live, doing interview after interview, and I am excited to be talking to Demetrius Minor from Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. Demetrius, welcome to the show. Tell me what,
4: uh, what your organization's all about. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So, we raise concerns about the death penalty uh, for several reasons. Uh, Essentially, it's an extension of big government. Uh, It's wasteful, uh, costly, ineffective. It doesn't make us safer. It doesn't give uh, any services to uh, victims' families. Um, So for this reason and others are, are why we have grave concerns about the death penalty
0: so um when i think about the death penalty i too am i you know concerned about the death penalty I, i do have concerns about it and here's my reason um as i will state is is that the death penalty proposes that in some way we make right the wrong of killing by killing and the killing of an innocent we know that um, you know sometimes mistakes are made, even in jury trials. Especially in jury trials, you take a bunch of twelve ignoramuses about the law and tell them, uh, yeah, make a salute, make a make a decision here. Sometimes they're going to be mistaken, and then we kill an innocent person in order to make good for killing an innocent person. That makes everybody, in my opinion, that advocates for the death penalty. A ki- the killer that they're trying to kill. And that doesn't make any sense to me. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's this sort of dichotomous
4: loop that we all get caught in. Mark, you hit the nail right on the head. It, what the death penalty does, it perpetuates this cycle of trauma and grief. And it's just tr- being transferred from the perpetrator to the victim's family. It doesn't solve anything. Here's something that's very concerning about the death penalty. It is the only punishment that is irreversible. If you get it wrong, you can't go back and make amends. You can't go back and correct it. Um, The mistake is fatal. Also, I don't trust the government to give me accurate COVID numbers. I don't trust the government to deliver my mail on time. Why would I trust the government? And Mark, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, but literally with a life and death issue. And so for these reasons and for the ones that you just um, so eloquently raised, This is why the death penalty needs to be abolished. So um,
0: when I think about abolishing the death penalty, I think about places like New Hampshire, for instance, which has a death penalty, but hasn't used it in uh, almost 100 years. Um, There's also places like Oklahoma, which seems to be killing them twice a year over there. So there's a a wide variety, a wide range of what's going on as far as uh, the death penalty goes. I mean, some people say, well, you know, it doesn't uh, affect that many people. It's not a big government program. But everybody who's on death row gets automatic appeals. They're automatically clogging up the system. And we don't know uh, like, who's paying for that. It's, it's really expensive. It's pretty cheap to give a baloney sandwich three times a day to somebody in prison. It's really expensive to run them through the court system time after time after time.
4: If you put the Duke's mayonnaise on a bologna sandwich, it might drive up the price price there. But no, um, it is more expensive um, for death penalty um, trials and cases. Contrasted that to being a, a, an, in prison life without parole. And here's the reason why: because of the costs that are accrued over time with death penalties, you need a new uh, a new jury, new um, new lawyers and the litigation costs. Um, one one thing I do want to respectfully correct, New Hampshire has abolished the death penalty. They did it in 2019 um, with the uh, help of a Republican state legislator, um, which shows that the, this shift is taking place in conservative and libertarian circles that they are now coming to oppose the death penalty. But, uh, y- y- you know, a lot of people want to point to DNA evidence, DNA evidence isn't always 100% accurate. And to me, we've gotten it wrong before. If you get it wrong once, that's one time too many when it comes to life. So let's talk about the cases
0: where we know somebody's guilty. Um, For instance, the Boston bomber you talked about. But by the way, I apologize. I I didn't know that New Hampshire had abolished the death penalty. Um, But, you know, I'd lived there and I left in 2019. So, you know, pardon pardon me. Um, So the Boston bomber, I remember... Well, I was living in New Hampshire at the time, so some years ago, uh, finding out that the the guy that lived i don't know their names um, but the younger brother that lived was going to be was going to get the death penalty so um, you know he was found it was the trial was in Massachusetts, and these uh, the, you know the state full of liberals decided, yeah, this guy's got to die over this one. I thought to myself as it was coming over the radio, I heard it, and I really feel like this guy's guilty. I could hear myself say good right like as a um you know as a conservative a- against the death penalty i don't know conservative are- as a libertarian against the death penalty mm-hmm. right as a human against the death penalty my reaction was this guy is guilty this i'm not going to lose any sleep and i have not over this guy <laughs> hitting, yeah. you know getting the electric chair or whatever <laughs> right
4: so I-, I think that's a total total human reaction i, I don't think you should feel irrational or abnormal in any ways and So this is something that many people would label as the most heinous of crimes, right? Here's where this can become problematic is that when you start having the label most heinous crimes, someone who has a crime committed to them or towards um, towards them or towards a loved one, they're going to feel like that's a heinous crime. Like, for example, I I think the majority of people will look at the Ballstein bombing as a heinous crime. But a mother who's daughter has been kidnapped that might not be considered a heinous crime and so she she's going to feel neglected if she doesn't get the same attention as the boston bomber so when we start identifying uh things as the most heinous what becomes problematic is that we start valuing one life over the other And, and i think that's uh that's inconsistent with conservative principles
0: I think that's, uh, you know interesting point, a uh, place to come on it. Another thing that probably needs to be mentioned when talking about the death penalty is that, and this is never, never mentioned, and to be you've probably never heard this one before, is the United States government authorized for decades the use of leaded gas, uh, gasoline. And this went into the atmosphere. And settled on the ground and a variety of things, and many kids for a long time. One of the reasons it's speculated that there's far less crime now that crime began to diminish in the 90s uh through through to now is is that we've been using unleaded gas for most of this time frame and this lead in fact drove a certain percentage of the population completely insane and um you know nobody wants to take culpability for that you know the people that drove the cars the people that you know were in the uh, the government um but uh, you know what level of culpability they have i don't know but i know that it affected it
4: so what I would say is uh, this is where we can call for increase of accountability and transparency into um, corporations or businesses or entities that are making such products that are uh, being used um, to, to go forth with the death penalty. And so uh, if we start doing that, I believe we're going to see a larger um, outcry um, within our circles within constituencies um, for this not to be used
0: so uh, you guys had your success uh, as far as getting the death penalty overturned in new hampshire sounds like you were integral to that thank you uh, and my question would be most of the people who are listening to this show on 200 radio stations across the united states and you know quarter million downloads and podcasts through out the month um, they're not going to be Legislators. There are some legislators that listen to Free Talk Live, but um, they're, most of them are not. What is the average person going to do? Some people, Most people are going to be outraged at what we're talking about because, um, you know, the kind of people who listen to Free Talk Live, they're going to largely not agree. But hopefully we've been convincing. We haven't, you know, I haven't appealed to anything emotional. Think about the children or whatever. I'm not trying to do that. Um, you know, like I, I've been as, as, as honest as I can. As far as I'm concerned, uh the, the death penalty is a big government program that doesn't work. And therefore, a conservative should be against it. Um, an advocate for life should be against the death penalty because... Uh, an advocate for the, the, the innocent life should be against the death penalty because some innocent people will necessarily be killed. What can the average person who's listening do to help?
4: This, that's a great question. when uh, in The average listener may not be... Uh, a person uh, who's an elected official who holds a position of political influence. But we are the people that get people elected, and we are the people who should hold them accountable. So lawmakers are not going to feel compelled to take a particular course of action if they're not hearing from the people, if they're not hearing from constituents, constituents, and if those demands are not being made. So people can easily... for, For example, we have legislation in the state of Ohio right now to overturn the death penalty. Um, There's bipartisan support. But right now, lawmakers are being distracted by issues such as redistricting and things of that nature, focusing on another primary, that if they're not feeling the pressure, they're not going to feel compelled to take action. And this is for any political issue. It is incumbent upon us as American citizens to let lawmakers know that we don't want the death penalty, that it needs to be repealed, If we put the pressure on the lawmakers, we'll see the action necessary. What's your website? www.conservativesconcern.org.
2: Free
0: Talk Live. Mark Edge, Free Talk Live here at Freedom Fest. I've got Ray Haynes from National Popular Vote. Um, I'm going to presume that's... Uh, we'll, we'll figure out what the website is here in just one second. Um, but, Ray, what you're proposing is is that the President of the United States should not be elected the way they they currently are through the electoral college and that sort of thing, and um, but that in fact they should be elected by a popular vote. Uh, this doesn't seem like a very popular thing to have at a conservative event where Republicans have decided in the last few years when since they benefited from the electoral college, where um, that that they like that suddenly the electoral college is a good thing.
6: Well, first of all, let's make one thing clear. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is what I'm espousing, does not get rid of the Electoral College. Rather, it takes the language of the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, which says, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. So it uses that language, keeps the Electoral College in place, but changes the method in which... Uh, electors are appointed from the current winner take all system, which is if you win the state, you get the electors from this state, to a system that says the states that are part of the interstate compact will award their electors to the person who gets the most votes in all 50 states. And while it is true that a lot of Republicans are skeptical because the last two Republican presidents were first elected without a uh, uh, popular vote, that doesn't mean Republicans have been benefiting from the systems. In fact, Those two elections were anomalies. Uh, If we continue down this road, as my opinion, as a conservative and as a Republican, we're going to get to a system which basically guarantees Democrats will win the presidency for the next 50 years. Please explain that to me. I am uh,
0: curious about it. I mean, like I... I don't have a horse in this race. I really don't. I mean, I don't think that the the founders were uh, given to us by Jesus at the top of Mount Vernon. Um, I mean, you know, these guys just came up with a system that was intended to protect, uh, you know, the smaller states from the larger states and the least less populous from the more populous and whatever the 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 ideas that they have. But um, it it. Well, I mean, you know, I think that the president is far too powerful of a position currently, but it does seem like if you give um, the popular vote to uh, make it the popular vote, then you're going to have California, Texas, New York and Florida making the decision.
6: Well, first of all, if indeed that could happen, uh, it would happen under the current system because those are the big states, the biggest, the 10 biggest states have more than enough electors to elect the president of the United States. So if, if it was going to happen, it would happen Anyway, under the current system, the biggest challenge and what we 're trying to fix is because of the problem of what what I call the problem of battleground states. The elections really only run in twelve states seventy five percent of the American people never actively participate in the decision to uh, uh, of who becomes president and I think that causes all sorts of policy and election problems when all of the campaign is focused in Florida, Ohio Iowa, New Hampshire you, know, pick the, you can pick the 12 states uh, you know where it's at, it happens every single time, I think that is a problem
0: well in new hampshire's only campaigned in for the primary so they're um making the the choice as far as the primary goes but they're not relevant when it comes to the general once it comes to the general then they're going to be spending their time in pennsylvania and um ohio and uh you know florida and and you know these battleground states as as you mentioned and that does give it in many ways i mean like for instance if you're in california and you're a republican why vote you know your vote is going to be uncounted what 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 you're saying is, is there's there's simply no point in v- in voting in california as a republican because no matter what your vote doesn't count now in a popular vote it would it would count i don't know that it would matter but whatever the, the you know the distinction might be
6: well first of all new hampshire is a battleground state so it does actually get general election Uh, campaign stops and they they spend enough you know it's got four electoral college votes they spend enough for four electoral college votes to make a difference so that is not just primary in new hampshire it's also general you're absolutely true about what you said about california as a california republican i am the least important voter in the country and problem is in california we leave about two and a half to three million votes on the table because nobody ever campaigns for them because they know it, never, it will never change. I believe if every single vote in every single state is important in every single election, Republicans will actually have to work to get conservative votes. They'll have to come up with a conservative agenda. They can't just campaign to moderates in Cleveland and Miami. They'll actually have to come up with a conservative agenda that works in Kansas and North Dakota and Idaho and, you know, pick the uh, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, all those states. uh, And they'll actually have to worry about what conservatives think, which is why I, as a conservative in California, believe that this is the best way to go. So that's what I've been uh, that's why I support the idea. So, paint this picture for me. Uh, what
0: it, how do Democrats just get in office and stay in office because of the electoral college that's currently in place when, the, like you said, the last two Republican presidents were uh, brought in by the uh, electoral college?
6: Well, what we have been seeing over the last, uh, well, since 1992, so what's that, last 30 years, is there have been a number of states, uh, I'll, I'll pick Colorado, Nevada, uh, New Mexico, As as the best examples, they have been floating towards the blue under the current system, under the winner take all system. They were reliably red up until 1992, and then we started losing. the The challenge that we have is Texas has been doing the exact same thing. The number uh, Texas voted 62 percent Republican in 2004, voted 53 percent Republican in 2020. That is a real problem for conservatives, and it's because we're not campaigning there to keep them. So what we've been seeing is states float to the blue because the mainstream media doesn't take our message. When we take our message, when the Republicans take their message to the voters, we win. If we leave it up to the mainstream media, we lose. Because, and, that's, and what this does is require Republicans to take their message. What the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact does is require Republicans to take their message to every single voter across the state. And if we can't persuade a majority of the people to vote our way, we really don't deserve power. But the fact is, if you go historically, you take a look at it, we do persuade them to vote our way, and we will have opportunities to win under a national popular vote uh, system. So, I'll concede that campaigning uh,
0: matters, uh, that uh, Republicans are probably being lost, Republican votes are being lost uh, as a result of, you know, just people campaigning, uh, the the presidential candidates campaigning um, in their different areas, um, in these, you know, areas for the battleground states. But I think that there's a, I think it's worth mentioning that Republicans in many cases um, are losing votes because they're not what they say they are, Um, that you're talking about you know they, they talk about little small government and then they advocate for big government war, which you know has for the last thirty years been a Republican platform. Um, is hugely expensive and they love it. Um, the the INS, uh, you know, Customs and Border Patrol apparatus. The government. The Republicans' only solution to immigration is let's get more law enforcement officers to I don't know what get paid off. I'm not entirely sure. So. As a Republican voter, and I've run for office three times as a Republican, I am—I mean, like my, my pedigree's there. What I have to say is is that Republicans have driven away the emerging demographics—the um, you know Chinese conservative, Muslims conservative, um, the uh, Mexican Americans and Central Americans. These are all conservative votes, but the Republicans act like they're the the, the boogeyman
6: hiding underneath the bed. Well, And I will agree with you on this this level. Too often, Republicans will talk uh, conservative and act moderate to liberal big government. But I point that to a problem. Under the current system, the president, because he only campaigns in 12 states, gets elected by more moderate voters in Cleveland and Miami than the conservative voters in South Dakota and Idaho and, you know, pick the conservative, what I call the big L, the mountain and Midwest states in the south those are the folks that have been disillusioned because Republicans don't live up to their promises. If all of a sudden those votes mattered, and right now they do not, then Republicans would have to worry about small government, less tax, worry about the Muslims because they're going to need them, they'll worry about the Hispanics because they're going to need them to win a popular vote, and they'll have to come up with an agenda that applies across all 50 states and brings these voters into the fold. I believe... That's why, as a conservative, I support the national popular vote, is because I think conservative values matter, and I think the Republicans sell them out because they're trying to get uh, moderates in Cleveland and Miami because that's how they win an election.
0: What, uh, where can people, what can people do, where can they go to find out more?
6: Real simple, nationalpopularvote.com, all one word, nationalpopularvote.com. It's got all the, all the arguments, who supports it, who's opposed to it, that sort of thing.
7: Free
0: Talk Live, Mark Edge, final day of Freedom Fest. I've got with me Brandon Mills running for Nevada State Senate under the uh, Libertarian ticket. Brandon, you know, it seems like the Nevada Libertarian Party is basically the, the whole core of uh, the volunteers here at Freedom Fest.
8: Uh, yeah, we uh, we came with quite an army of, uh, of people from our, from our camp. The Libertarian Party has had quite an influx over the last year when the Mises Caucus candidates took over. And, and we've had such a positive response. So we've been able to run more candidates than we've ever ran before in the history of Nevada under the Libertarian Party. And uh, and we're just trying to help where we can and uh, spread the message of liberty while, uh, while moving the needle in the right direction. So,
0: so state Senate um, allows you to affect policy that's inside the state. And I think that's the best way to do it is there's uh, so many of the nuts and bolts of tyranny really exist on the state level but people think about the national level you know they're upset or happy about the given uh, liar and thief that's in charge and um you know they don't really think about what's being done on the state level until it impacts them how many people in the state senate in nevada
8: oh i'm gonna th- think i'm in district 20 i'm in district 20 uh probably oh don't get me lying to you now now <laughs> Quite a few. Um, I, I, if uh, how are the
0: libertarians uh, polling, and you know what are the, your chances of actually uh, getting in office?
8: Uh, so right now we've got probably some of the most contentious races that have ever happened in Nevada. Uh, as an example, in in my district, uh, I'm running against a Republican that uh, has recently moved from California. He was a politician in California as a as a as a state senator from San Francisco. And uh, he's moved to my district to become a politician here. Uh, the Democrat uh, that I'm running up against, Brett Fouts, is. Uh, it took me two minutes on a Google search to come across his mugshot from 2020. Older gentleman, possibly a little bit senile, that, that trespasses and is not compliant with uh, police when they tell him to leave. And uh, and so <laughs> I've got uh, i the the people that I'm up against are uh, are definitely not the best and brightest that have uh, that have come across. Being that I am a third party, however, uh, I'm hoping that I can spread the message to people that are so used to voting along party lines that have gotten in- them into this mess to begin with. I mean, the, I'm, we're hoping that they wake up and, and realize that that their their habits of voting over the over the last decades have uh, have not resulted them in any freer uh, situations, and and we hope to change that. Right. You
0: can't do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. And uh, that's what it seems like Americans are doing in so many cases. Um, how many people are in your district? I mean, it seems like you're going to have a lot of uh, doors to knock on if you're trying to educate everybody.
8: Yeah. So my district is a wide geographical area. Uh, it's parts of Henderson, uh, which, is, which is outside of Las Vegas. Uh, it it's, encompasses a lot of rural Nevada. Uh, it goes all the way up to Mesquite, down to Bullhead City. Uh, it 's about one hundred and thirty five thousand population encompassing enc- enc- uh, about uh, probably four main cities uh, but uh, but from there uh, it's, it's there 's a whole lot of smaller towns and and a lot of liberty loving people that that just need to know about me uh, Fundraising and and getting the message out has been is, has been an uphill challenge so we 'll see how it goes. The ideas of liberty seem to be very popular in Nevada.
0: Um, it seems like Nevadans, um, real Nevadans, I'm not talking about people who have moved uh, for the last, uh, you know, say 15 years, I'm talking about people who have been here a very long time, um, you know, they really seem to appreciate the ideas of liberty and really be into it. And I know that the, uh, at the Libertarian Convention, Nevada is very proud of its uh, liberty you know, heritage on, on all the things that it's,
8: it's achieved. Yeah, so Nevada has historically been very libertarian. Uh, I mean, you can look at the way that we, you know, we have casinos and whorehouses. Uh, it, it's a place that you can come and 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 be yourself outside of areas that that might not have as much freedom. Uh, as of late, however, uh, that is starting to change. Uh, we've had the lockdowns over the last two years with Governor Cisilak. You know. Closing down generational businesses that that just couldn't couldn't maintain the uh, the mandates that uh, that 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 they had to uh, to lock down, being told that they were they were not essential. Um, as as an example, I bought my business three months before lockdowns, so went all in financially, and then three months later was told I can't I can't continue to run it. Uh, and and it's been a, it's been a quite a challenge. Uh, I I felt an obligation at a very minimum, to run for public office as a platform to tell the government to screw themselves. <laughs> and, uh, and, and if at a very minimum, if that's all I'm able to do, I see that as a success. If people want to continue to support me and, and, and want me to carry that message further, I, I, I will take it as far as they want me to. I will take it as far as I can and uh, and I do not. I'm not looking to be part of the government. I'm looking to be a challenge to the government, uh, in in the political sphere. So we'll see what happens. So if people are
0: looking for a destination to come, maybe they want to lo- lo- stay inside the United States. I often use Nevada as an example of how one can attain freedom in their life by simply picking up and moving. If you're into uh, legal weed, uh, legal gambling, prostitution, um, you know, I, I can't even remember what the other uh, others are on the list, but you can do so many things. Uh, like you can get out here on the strip, you can fire a machine gun. Um, and, you know, I've never fired a machine gun, and, uh, you know, so many people haven't. That's something that you can do in Nevada, and it's a freedom that you can enjoy. Would you consider Nevada to be a liberty destination?
8: So I grew up here in Nevada, and, and I've had all these freedoms, and it's been fantastic. And, and after, after coming back, I, I left for a while, and, as, and on my return, I could see that a lot of liberties are disappearing quickly. Uh, and I don't know what the result of that is, if that's just people coming from other places that were looking for freedom, but then voted the same way they did from the place they came from. Or, or what that is, uh, but but I do know that that Nevada has a very liberty stronghold, and and we are not going to lay down while authoritarians and tyrannical governments try to steamroll us and tell us what we can and can't do. We uh, we have a long tradition of of entrepreneurship, of uh, of taking taking what we what we have, providing value to others. And, and, and living our own lives uh, with with freedom.
0: So if somebody wants to find these real Nevadans, um, is, you're not going to find them in Vegas, my guess would be, but well, not generally. Um, and prob- maybe Reno? I mean, I love Reno. I, I've really enjoyed my time there.
8: So Vegas and Reno are great. There's great people in both. Uh, and, and you're probably going to find a lot of, uh, a lot of the... Uh, Veg, like Las Vegas residents, Reno residents, people that are from these places that have lived here a long time and have seen the changes over the years, uh, you're probably going to find a lot of freedom, uh, groups and individuals. I, I mean, it's, it's really not hard. You, you throw a rock, you're probably going to hit one, but at the same time you throw a rock, they're going to be upset and they're probably gonna defend themselves. <laughs>
0: You know, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Brandon. It's Brandon Mills. How can people find your uh, the website for your state senate campaign?
8: It's uh, www.electbrandonmills.com. Uh, my business is www.totalpromotioncompany.com. Uh, you can get a hold of me through through any of those channels uh, if you want to talk further and, uh, and we can get together and, and figure some stuff out. Brandon Mills, thank you.
0: Mark Edge, Free Talk Live here at Freedom Fest. I've got Richard, is it Friesen? Friesen, yes. And your book is a private conversation with money. Richard, I I, I think that people have funny ideas that they've developed over time about money and that in many cases these in most cases these ideas are, are counterproductive to what their goals are.
7: Yeah, when you say funny, it's really sad. Because we've grown up with a lot of our cultural heritage and our family beliefs about money. My grandparents came through the Great Depression. They had a view of money. My dad reacted a very different way about money. It was very loose. But if I look at what I developed from them, it as actually an anchor around my feet to move forward in terms of money, success, and meaning.
0: So um, your, your book here, and I think that it's, the, at the very least, I like the ideas that you've uh, uh, mentioned to me here, is your book is to help people get better ideas around money so that they can make more and live a better life, right?
7: Yes. You know, if we look at my clients, uh, I've been a floor trader. I've built a trading firm. We look at what the trader's success was, how they failed, and amazingly enough, Most of it is our mindset and the confusion and the conflicts that we've absorbed and inherited. My clients are good-hearted people, but in today's current culture with the conflicts around money, wealth, success, taxation, and politics, what that means is that that confusion has created internal conflicts as they absorbed, and it doesn't need to be
0: yeah it's um so I mean you think about your parents and your grandparents and whatever their vocation was, I'm sure they were very good at it, but in our sort of modern society, I'm talking about in the last hundred years, for whatever reason, not only do we have to be fine craftsmen at our vocation, whatever that might have been, but we also have to understand money or the consequences are going to be there and this stuff isn't taught to us in school, and by the way, I wasn't paying attention in school anyway. If it was taught to me, you know, all they taught me to do was write a check. Um, but uh, you know, that's because they don't care about that. They they're they're trying to create good worker bees. They're not trying to
7: create people who are good with money. Well, exactly right. So what I do is I take people through a number of steps that clarify their money thinking, their history, their beliefs, and the behaviors. So I have the concept of the golden keys, the first of which is awareness. Most of us are not aware of all the conflicts and subconscious thinking we have. Next, rather than criticizing ourselves for what we discover, is acceptance. What if we were to accept all these voices, these conflicts, and say, oh, I understand how they came about. I understand positive intent. And from there, we can create agency. The ability to not only observe ourselves and our beliefs, but from that higher level to create new behaviors that serve us a lot better. And what I do is I have a number of exercises in the book that helps clarify each of those voices, each of those steps, each of those beliefs, so that you can make your own decision and become an agent in your own life.
0: I'm going to take the book because I think that this is, um, you know, this is the sort of thing that I want to spend more time with. Of course, I can forgive myself for not being perfect when it comes to money. Nobody is, and nobody's ever going to be, um, everybody, you know, everybody's learning. Everybody's uh, trying to figure things out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a relatively new concept, uh, you know, managing money, investment vehicles, you know, all the stuff that we, um, are currently dealing with, um, with these uh, these gold keys, what are some of the points that uh, that you 're trying to get across to people?
7: Well, the biggest point is what is our relationship with money and I have an exercise that 's online you can you 'll find it in the book and how to get there. But what we do is you have a conversation with money. so when clients used to come to me, we used to set up chairs, three chairs, you sit in the first chair. And you put something that represents money in the second chair. For some people, it's gold. Some people, it's a pile of $100 bills. Others, a bank statement. And in the third chair, you put your wisest self. And so we start out, and, and you start talking to money. So the conversation usually goes something like, why do you leave me? Why do you come and give me a bunch, and then you go away? Or I resent you. Or some people, I love you. Why don't, aren't you closer? Why can't I have more of you? So we have the pain that comes up around how we perceive money. Some people will move money away because it's evil. Some people will want to move it closer. But now we can get down to the underlying our attitude. Then, this is the magic. I have them change and become the money. How do you view Joe? Do you want to be closer to Joe? What is his attitude towards you? What do you think about him? So This is a bit of a trick to allow them to see another voice in themselves and to see themselves from the money point of view. Sometimes it just blows their socks off to discover how they actually uh, are are subterfuging themselves uh, around money because money gives them a perspective. Then we put them in the chair of their wisest self. Observe the conversation, what did you notice? What did you see? How did you uh, what What can Joe do that that makes the difference? And we go back to Joe and with the enlightenment of his understanding his money voice, looking at his wisest self, then we can ask the question so now, what do you want and From that perspective, I feel an emotional rush right now as I say this. From that perspective, all of a sudden, real change happens.
0: You know, and this is what people need is, is that they they don't spend any time thinking about their relationship to money. Um, I can see that you're personifying it. Um, obviously, you know, they're, they're, it's it's not it's not a it's not a person, but I mean, at the very same thing. I mean, whatever it takes as far as exercises for people to get a uh, a new view, because um, you know, so many of us are making bad choices uh, again and again, again and again around money. Um, I'm excited about getting a chance to uh, check this uh, book out on the plane and um, I'm going to I'm going to check it out thanks so much Richard um, how do people find out more about this book and uh, where do they go to get it
7: yeah conversations.money that's conversations.money and there you can learn about where to get the book it's on Amazon uh, once you get the book you'll get a free course that has all the exercises in it and the the respondents I the people who respond Tell me that this has opened up their lives to be more creative, less angry, less frustrated at work, because all of a sudden the core value they end up with and adopt is how can I deliver more value to others? And what I get in return is what I call certificates of appreciation. So all of a sudden our moral and ethical conflicts just evaporate because we're giving value. And we're getting certificates of appreciation back. And here's the kicker. The more certificates of appreciation we have, the more value we've delivered. And for once, we don't have to feel guilty or constrained around our wealth because our wealth represents how much good we've done for others.
0: That was the philosophy, or at least part of the philosophy of uh, one of the greats in the business, Zig Ziglar. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I uh, spent a lot of time reading Zig Ziglar back yeah, probably 20 years ago. And I've tried to form my ethos around the notion of service um, as, a, as a method for wealth production. Um, and that's, for me, basically been, that's the whole thing is just trying to be of service to others.
7: Yes, and we can all be in service. I mean, some people can be in service outside of the monetary realm, like Martin Luther King, for example. And But for many of us, the world really needs services, and they are very appreciative, and they get so much more value from what we deliver that their certificates of appreciation they give to us are... Are, are genuinely in appreciation because it's made a difference in their lives. So it's such a win-win, and it's so simple. And that reframe and the reframes and the exercises can really free us up. And once we're freed up, we can be more creative, we can deliver more value, we can be happier with what we do. So I just love it when clients come back to me and tell me what a difference that this has made conversations.money It's
0: conversations.money Mark Edge, Free Talk Live here at Freedom Fest. I've got Thomas Sheedy from Atheists for Liberty. We've had a lot of uh, Christian liberty organizations here on uh, Free Talk Live. I really didn't want, as a matter of fact, very
9: few people have I ran out and found for interviews, Thomas, but you're one of them. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mark. I really appreciate coming on the show and and glad that we could finally get this arranged. I know that you've been walking and talking to everybody and I've been walking and talking to so many people because Freedom Fest has just been an amazing experience for, for everybody.
0: Yeah, Freedom Fest is great, and I can't say enough nice things about it. Valerie, the organizer, just walked by. We've got the sheets here. I know for sure that this will air after the announcement comes out, so next year's Freedom Fest, that's 2023, will be in Memphis, Tennessee. You can find out more at freedomfest.com. I'm excited. The best bet is to get your tickets right now because that's when they're cheapest. Freedomfest.com for Freedom Fest Memphis. Thanks for the opportunity to plug that, Thomas. I really appreciate it. So speaking of plugs, I'm kind of interested. Atheists for Liberty. It's... I wonder about the purpose of the organization. On one hand, I think to myself, you don't have a non-stamp collector organization. Why an atheist organization for Liberty?
9: So... Atheist organizations have existed for quite a while, and it's because for generations, unfortunately, there has been a massive stigma against atheists in this country. For a very long time, there has been a narrative that if you support liberty or if you think you're a good or ethical person, you must be a believer, specifically a Christian believer. Despite the fact that the United States is a secular nation, while having a majority Christian population, we've had a long history in this this country of religious freedom. And we as atheists feel like we should be treated equally in this country, that we should have an equal seat in government. And for a long time, atheist activism has existed now, especially going in a very successful direction for the last 20 years. But not many initiatives until recently when it comes to reaching out to liberty-loving Americans in the liberty movement, in the conservative movement, and various other places. So, a few years ago, myself and other veterans from the former atheist movement that turned very woke, unfortunately, in recent years, we decided to form Atheists for Liberty to continue the fight for protecting a separation between religion and government and promoting reason while simultaneously advocating for ideals that have really made this country great, such as liberty, and making sure that our atheist activism to normalize atheism is really bipartisan.
0: So atheists have rightly pointed out that they have a difficult time getting elected, especially if they're out atheists. I don't think it terribly matters for anything but, say, president. Uh, they're, they're definitely going to ask the question, what's your denomination if you're president? I think that that's absolutely true. But really, Senate, house, that sort of thing, I don't think people really pay that much attention. But if you were to come out and say, well, yes, I'm an atheist, then I think it might uh, cost you 5% and thus the vote.
9: Yeah, in in, in many cases that still is the case. I'll, I'll go back a little bit when I talk about some American political history. 20 years ago, in 2002, there was an event called the Godless Americans March on Washington, where <laughs> a lot of atheist think tanks that have existed for a few decades, but kind of still weren't that famous yet and that relevant yet. They were so desperate during that event to try to scrounge up a bunch of money to hire a lobbyist and to get one Democrat in some kind of state house anywhere to say that they're atheists or that they support the, the, the separation of church and state or the idea that atheists can be good patriotic Americans, too. Fast forward 20 years later, in the United States House of Representatives, we have a congressional free thought caucus filled with atheist and atheist ally, members of the U.S. House of Representatives, just 20 years later. The problem is, is if you take a look at everybody that's in that caucus, they all happen to be a part of one political denomination. The good news is, is that it took volunteers. It took grassroots efforts. It took fundraising and it took a lot of activism to normalize the idea that you could be a Democrat, for instance, and be an atheist or a good person or run for office as a dem and as an atheist and get elected. And just recently, 20 years later in 2022, in the state of Idaho, there is now a member of the Idaho State House who's a Republican who is an outed atheist, who is running for office, and is statistically likely to win more than any other opponent he's got. Just think about what's going to happen just 20 years later with the start of normalizing atheism on the other side of American politics and finally seeing that on the political right in this country, you could be an atheist, support a separation between church and state, and still love this country and think of this country as the greatest nation in the history of the world. It's going to take some work, but we at Atheists for Liberty are going to get right to it.
0: Can you tell me what an atheist ally is? I've never heard this term before. You know, I mean, I, I usually consider atheists to be people who, you know, they're very long on debate, um, not certainly long on brains, you know, but I, I guess it to me, it's largely a boring conversation that God doesn't exist. Not that, uh, you know, not where, you know, what they're trying to do within, you know, other organizations, because I think it's fair and right. Um, you know, it doesn't for me, as far as a politician goes, I really don't care. Yeah.
9: I just care if a politician gets the job done, regardless of their religious beliefs.
0: Actually, I'd prefer them to do nothing at all, but that, that's fine.
9: <laughs> um, so uh, when, it, when it comes to that debate, I, I do I do actually agree um, on, on some of that. But when it comes to being an atheist ally, we have a lot of religious friends here at Freedom Fest, uh, as well as various other conferences and exhibitions that we've done, who might disagree with us on the God question. And we would get into debates with them and have lovely conversations on why we think it's more important to be reasonable than religious and, and secular than, than, than religious. But we simultaneously, we have religious friends who support our right to be here, our Ability to push for liberty and our ability to push for freedom and to agree to disagree if we can't come to an agreement on the God question on everything else.
0: So I think it's, you know, it is fascinating. But I, one of the things I was thinking, when I think of libertarianism, I think of a strong streak of no gods, no kings, uh, this, this long lineage uh, that has uh, come through us through political thought that connects those two ideas, that there's no rulers on the planet and there's no
9: rulers off the planet either. Yeah, and it's why now uh, at our second Freedom Fest exhibition, we've gotten more support now than ever. We were at um, Freedom Fest 2021 in Rapid City, South Dakota. We had the... the cheapest exhibition cost that you could have i think it was bronze we paid like a thousand bucks or something like that we were right in the back of the exhibition hall but the atheists were uh, not atheists were the, team. the freedom fest team loved us being there so much they sent us a personalized letter saying that they would love for us to be there next year we took advantage of that opportunity we met up with them at cpac in florida and said that we were so thankful for their generosity with us they gave us a gold sponsorship at half the price gold sponsorship at half the price. They allowed us to moderate a debate on the Freedom Fest main stage between Michael Schirmer and Eric Metaxas on his Atheism Dead. We had a Heathens Happy Hour event that we planned and that they still wanted on their website, where we got 200 attendees to go in and out during that total time of things, because there was that much of an atheistic demand here at Freedom Fest, and I got to give a breakout presentation on that very rise of atheism, which will eventually be released online uh, on our YouTube channel. There really is a demand to see atheism represented here more within the liberty movement and the freedom fest team is smart they know optics they read data and they know the future of what the liberty movement is going to be and like i said on that main stage the future of the liberty movement mark it's going to be a secular one so
0: that i find that a little scary and here i am tell you exactly why the when you pass the plate at the church jesus going to be mad if you don't put money in. Atheists, on the other hand, have had traditionally a very difficult time raising money. I imagine some of the money for this booth came out of your pocket. And I see a lot of guys over there. Um, a lot of people over there, uh, you've got a big cadre and you're giving away a lot of swag which says to me that you you've you know you've done your fundraising you've done your homework and and I like seeing that but um you know I guess my biggest concern is is that I know one of the reasons that people give is sort of a faith belief kind of thing
9: Well, yeah, I I, I would agree if we haven't seen the success of the atheist movement in the past before it went down due to woke infiltration. Um, There is a large donor base of people who really do want to see atheist activism and the normalcy of atheism and secularism in government pursued. We have had large national conventions throughout the history of atheist activism in this country with very famous individuals such as uh, those who were speakers here at Freedom Fest speaking at them. And we're going to be doing the very same thing with Atheists for Liberty in our future. We started out uh, at CPAC 2020. That's where we premiered as an organization. And back in that day, we only had a certain amount of funds. Some of that, yeah, I will admit, we, some of it we paid for. I printed out our follow us on social media pages on Microsoft Word and just have them put in like cheap Staples plastic flyer holders. Fast forward to two years later, we have a wide volunteer team, a state director base, more donors, more supporters. We're still a small growing organization, but we have our act together even more. We persevered through the COVID pandemic, having to try to see what worked and what didn't work while having little support and having places shut down and fewer conferences to go to. But through that experience and through us really caring about our mission and and persevering despite... Just the nature of culture and politics sometimes being against us, we're going to succeed. And just our success at Freedom Fest alone and seeing the demand of atheists wanting us to do more, old boomers coming up and saying they want to write checks to us, it really does make me feel excited on where the future of atheists, what the future of atheists for liberty is going to be, which means that the future of the liberty movement is ultimately going to be stronger with the largest growing demographic in the United States diversifying and coming over here to stand for joint values.
0: Perfect. Where do people find out more about Atheists for Liberty?
9: Yeah, so people can find us at atheistforliberty. org. It's a great website. We have a join us page right in the homepage. You can click that, uh, click that link, everybody. And there's tons of benefits to becoming a member. Please join us. We have um, we have a lot of great benefits. Um, a wide advisory board, a state director program. We have online and in person events. We're on social media at Atheist Liberty on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler, Getter Minds, you name it. We're doing a lot of great work, and we could use all your help to save. This country in a secular and new way.
0: You need lots of benefits because you're not going to heaven. Inshallah.
9: Well. Free Talk Live.
0: All right, it's another edition of the Edgington Post Show here at Freedom Fest for Free Talk Live. I've got with me Edward Hudgens from the Human Achievement Alliance. Now, Edward, you've been on the show many times for like the Atlas Society, is that right? That's right, the Atlas Society, the Heartland Institute, I think, and many
10: other places. I've worked at Cato, I've worked at the Heritage Foundation, i worked for the Joint Economic Committee of Congress in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C., and it's still beastly, by the way.
0: So I know you're one of these guys that works at the think tanks, and you must be valuable because you end up in uh, all different ones. What is it you're doing for the Human Achievement Alliance, and what is the Human Achievement Alliance?
10: Okay, well, this is a new organization I founded basically to carry on the work I've been doing at some of the other organizations. My premise is this. Entrepreneurs using exponential technology in communications and information, um, biohacking, uh, nanotech, uh, robotics, uh, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, could unleash a future of unimagined wealth and prosperity with healthy, long, even 200-year lives. This is not science fiction anymore. That's how good the technology is. From a technological perspective, there's no better time in human history to be alive. Yet, in our society, we see this incredible incredulous polarization of negativity of people tearing down statues and saying how terrible the world is and the country is and so forth has nothing to do necessarily with the covid pandemic we have this incredible canyon-wide divide of what we could be where the opportunities are and what we actually see in the world today so what and, and we have a lot of misunderstandings about what technology can do. People fear that uh, you know they're going to technology is going to take all of their jobs. Um, we're going the you know biotech is going to produce a race of uh, soulless zombies and me- robots and that are going to rule us. You know, the Terminator. All of this sort of misinformation. So what my organization is doing is basically three things. Number one, to educate and to raise consciousness about exactly what is possible uh, with these technologies. Number two, to do this focusing on four uh, areas, four topic areas, you might say. First and foremost is um, our medical reform and longevity. We're to the point now where medical researchers, for example, have been using a technique called CRISPR-Cas9 genetic editing. They've been experimenting to turn off the production of tau proteins in brain neurons. What does that mean in English? Well, it's the clumping of tau proteins in neurons in the brain that's associated with Alzheimer's. Literally, researchers are trying to turn off Alzheimer's. My poor 90-year-old mom has Alzheimer's. I wish they had done this, you know, 20 years ago. But the Food and Drug Administration in Washington, D.C. is in the way. Um, Other areas, by the way, future economy. We are going to lose a lot of jobs. When I say lose a lot of jobs, it means we're going to need more people doing different things. The education system is so disconnected um, that the big problem is that uh, businesses can't find the talent.
0: Yeah, whatever happened to all the farriers and blacksmiths? I mean, you know, I mean, the idea that somehow we're going to be reduced to a, a, a wasteland of uh, fat people in uh, wheelchairs is ridiculous. No, it's ridiculous. I mean, this has, been, this has been the argument going on for over 200 years with the so-called Luddites.
10: Well, you know, we're not going to have women, you know, hand sewing shirts in uh, workhouses and therefore everyone's going to be unemployed. This is the whole Marxist idea. But, of course, what we know is that every time machines and technology is introduced, there's an adjustment period. But we all end up prosperous. Look, 15 years ago, nobody had a modern smartphone. Zero people. This tr- college dropout, it took like one semester, dropped out of college and co-founded Apple Computer. And now 87% of Americans have a smartphone. By the way, my my... my Twins have a smartphone right now. <laughs> okay? Yeah, that's what technology can, uh, uh, you know, can, can do. It doesn't eliminate jobs. It creates more opportunities for even higher-paying jobs. But this is where the disconnect with education is. You mentioned blacksmiths and all. This is interesting. Seventy percent of Swiss kids go through a learn-and-earn program uh, when they're in high school. Uh, so they try out for a job. It's like they could, do, they could do carpentry if they want to or something like that. But most of them go into one of the 200 categories, which are things like finance, pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, computers, all of these kind of things. And Switzerland is one of the most prosperous countries in the world. In this country, maybe 5% of kids go through programs. What happens is they basically get a government loan, a lot of them. They go to college. They spent four years getting drunk and laid, uh, come out with huge debts with a degree that no one is interested in. And then they, of course, have been indoctrinated with a socialist uh, woke dogma. So they go down, they go out, they tear down statues, demand that the government gives them everything. You know. And usually, by the way, it should be, they've, they've taken their Uber... Uh, to Starbucks to sit there with their, um, with their MacBook and complain about the evils of capitalism.
0: Okay. Right. they really just don't understand um, you know modern economics and what brought us here to this uh, you know these this level of, of uh, technology technological paradise Right, exactly but this is the third part I said basically education um,
10: looking at these four areas which is basically medical uh, um, uh, education future economy and by the way technopath from poverty because we want to do something with the urban poor but the third part of the strategy is engagement forming coalition's there are people who are frustrated with the current system but who won't speak up there are people in the longevity movement who I've been working with who uh, want to cure aging who want to cure diseases but the Food and Drug Administration is in the way they want to be the Steve Jobs in these areas and so what I'm doing is working and trying to form coalitions of groups that we might not agree with them on everything but we want to but they have an optimistic view of the future uh, the way I'd summarize it if you want to talk about the philosophical perspective, which is, by the way, what I'm trying to do in the end is right now we have a culture that's dominated by pessimism, nihilism, anger, you know, impotence, hopelessness, malevolence. I want to replace it with a culture that's dominated by optimism, uh, purpose, joy and achievement, uh, empowerment, and benevolence. And we need that spirit so that we can go out and do all these wonderful things, but we need the liberty to do them. Uh, we need the liberty for more Steve Jobs and more entrepreneurs like that to do it. And I think that we the free in the freedom movement can pull together and work with these other folks and get the good ones to say, hey, you know, do you want a dystopian future or do you want what we really could do with the technology we have today? Let's embrace it. We don't want the left to take this over, okay? Uh, we, you know, like they've screwed up so many other things.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really sad that, um, you know, the left is supposed to be a uh, party of, or at least a, a group of people, I should say, of progress, uh, of, uh, you know... Uh trying to to break the old, the old bad things of the past. And they what they've really turned into is this kind of sophomoric, cynic, uh, cynical group that's like everything sucks and the people in charge are terrible and, you know, don't trust anybody over 30. Um, frankly, you know, you know, anybody under 30 is probably a fool to the level that you shouldn't be listening to them in the first place. Uh, speaking as somebody who was under 30 at one point. Yes, I was under 30, but it was many decades ago. But no, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, they really deeply
10: don't care about the people they, cl- they claim to care about. Look at any urban area in the United States that's dominated by these, this philosophy, right? Baltimore City, I live in Maryland. In Baltimore City, uh, they had 13 high schools that had zero kids competent in math. Not only, not only 30%, not only 20%, zero. Uh, they're, they're crime-ridden hell holes. There was one poor kid about a year or so ago who graduated only three classes in four years and yet he was in the top half of his class and he passed every grade. And the principal of this degenerate school was getting over $200,000 to run this sick operation. Um,
0: that's how bad the situation is. And if you say something about not liking government school, you hate kids' education. I'll tell you who hates kids' education, the people who run government schools and the people who want to fund them. I mean, it takes real people who have passion. One would presume if you spend four to six years trying to become a teacher that you have some passion for educating kids. One would presume that. But only a bureaucracy of the highest level of malevolence could take that and rip that out of every young person that comes in in order to teach these kids. I mean, if you want education, the first thing we need to do is shut down the Department of Education. Only the government can ruin this stuff. Right? Ab-
10: absolutely. And again, I'm convinced, as I say, uh, in Switzerland, 70% of kids go through private uh, apprenticeships. I'm convinced that in the next decade, we have a chance to revolutionize the school system, the government-dominated schooling system, uh, because businesses want something better, the entrepreneurs want something better, and the parents
0: more and more. Look what happened in San Francisco. Edward, I'm sorry to cut you short. Um, it's the Human Achievement Alliance. Tell me how people can find you. You can go to
10: www.humanachievementalliance.org or eHudgens at humanachievementalliance.org.
0: Mark Edge for Free Talk Live here at Freedom Fest. I am getting interview after interview, and I'm really excited to have Dennis Haw here on Free Talk Live. Dennis is a, uh, looks like, three-time author, Dennis. I've got books sitting here right in front of me. I've got The Road to Americanism. Uh, Tell me about it.
11: Well, The Road to Americanism is actual constitutional history. And contrary to what one might think, the history of our Constitution really starts during the colonial period. And uh, what people don't usually think about, it was actually the Continental Congress, the second one, that told the states to go write their own constitutions. And that's actually what led the evolution of that to the constitution that we know today.
0: So these state constitutions of the original 13 colonies, in many cases are older than the U.S. Constitution because if people were recall there was a war, it took a period of time then there was a first try called uh, how, what are the Articles of Confederation and then after those failed, I'm using air quotes um, here I don't know whether they failed or not, but <laughs> um, as the case may be um, the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists they fight over it and the Constitution gets, uh, gets brought into play. This is 1789, so from 1776 to 1789 uh you know a bunch of things happen
11: a lot of things and that's what i cover in here uh and in in particular like you said i i actually wrote a blog about this you could consider the constitution to be articles confederation version two as a software guy we're used to having this conundrum do you change the name of a product or do you just call it a different revision Uh, The Linux people would know about that because Linus just decided after uh, version, I think, 262, he was going to just change it to version 3. There was no major revelation, so there was no real justification for that. But that's the kind of thing that can happen. And in doing that, you could actually look at each amendment that we do to the Constitution as a different revision of the Constitution. So however you want to look at it, the main difference between the Articles and the Constitution, of course, is the Articles did not have a central government like we know it today. They only had a legislative body. They didn't have a a judicial or an executive branch.
0: Right, so the President of the United States of America at the time was the guy who was just in charge of that legislative body, and there were i think thirteen of them or something. There were quite a few of them in that amount of time um, it, some some large amount uh you know like that and we don't talk about them historically, um, but they, they certainly exist. Now, the the United was not capitalized in that circumstance, so the United States of America was the little you um, under the Articles of Confederation.
11: And, you know, that's an interesting subject. There's a lot of debate as to who the first person to actually use United States was. I think right now the tip kind of goes to Jefferson, but there are the people that are contenders. For one thing, there was a newspaper in North Carolina that looks like it even predates Jefferson, but you know how those things are. It's kind of like who blesses what.
0: Yeah, history's. Uh, it's interesting to to keep on finding that thing back there. I like, for instance. Um I can't remember what it says. You can't invade America because there's a, there'll be a, a rifle behind every blade of grass made by some World War II uh, Japanese admiral or, or something like that. And we find out that it's an apocryphal quote. It's not accurate. But so what? It, the, the, the quote's accurate. The, uh, who we ascribe that quote to, that's an argument for historians. doesn't really matter to me.
11: That's right. I totally agree with that. However, there is one thing I would point the introductory chapter on this. Everybody's heard lately about a republic, if you can keep it, by Franklin, but they don't know the exact history behind that, and I reveal that in here. It's far different from what people think. It didn't happen coming out of the convention.
0: Right. The idea is, is that uh, Benjamin Franklin steps out of the Convin- the Constitution- second constitutional Congress or whatever, and uh, he says to a and a woman says, "What are you about in there, Mr. Franklin? A uh, uh, republic, madam, if you can keep it." You know, in this kind of uh, this thing, it's it's dramatic and it's awesome.
11: Yeah, but it didn't happen that way. <laughs> of course, it didn't. We <laughs> know who the woman was, and it happened the next day.
0: Very good. So it's the road to Americanism, and I, um, you know, I I haven't read any of these books, I but I've got them sitting here in front of me. So I want to go through all of them, and you talk about all of them. How about stability, justice, and clarity? How to restore social stan- uh, sanity? Again, it's Dennis Haw. Uh,
11: I, this is actually the first book I wrote, and uh, I wrote it because I was worried about where the country was going back in 2016. You and me both. I think all of us were. And like everybody else, I'm just trying to do what I can to to right the ship. Anyway, this is actually a retitle, and where it comes from is when I was looking for a good title of this book, I kept coming back to Federalist 10. And in Federalist 10, James Madison talks about the mortal diseases that have destroyed popular governments everywhere. And those are instability, injustice, and confusion. And now, what's really important about this, The ti- I don't want to harp just on the title too much, but if you look at the way that communist takeovers happen, this is exactly what they do. They inject confusion that causes instability, and then one of the byproducts of that is they start enforcing injustice. And there is no bigger injustice than social justice. And what I would point to on that is the definition of justice that i happen to like is bastiat's which he states there was no there is no existence for justice it's injustice that has an existence and so what that means is that it's it's an absolute and so you can't qualify it so the minute somebody puts a qualified adjective in front of justice they've just created another form of injustice Yeah, as far
0: as I'm concerned, if you're making decisions about somebody based on the color of their skin or the gender that they have, you're just a racist or a sexist and going in the other direction. And I don't care whether, you know, it it doesn't matter to me what kind in particular of racist you are. You're just a racist. Um, And quick, real quick here to talk about the pocket guide to communism and the founders of critical race theory. Again, Dennis Haw.
11: Uh, this is just a 45-minute read I wrote because one of the things I did in the Air Force is I was an interrogator in the Siri program during the um, uh, Cold War. And now people have probably heard this c- pronounced as SEER. Uh, it's S-E-R-E. And it was originally started because we had people coming back that were brainwashed from the Korean War. And so we created these programs, uh, how to unbrainwash them. And for down pilots during Vietnam, all of us that were, were uh, uh, flight qualified wound up having to go through this program. And we did call it Siri. And it stood at that time for survival, escape, resistance, and evasion. Well, that has changed today a little bit in that they switched the E's. Because when we went into the Middle East, we found out that uh, Islamists were just going to cut off your head. So you just didn't want to get caught. So the um, escape part wound up being pushed to the end, so the evasion became more important. But at any rate, what I do here is I try to just go directly to the important aspects so that there's no fooling around. It's just informational. So if you're looking for a story behind things to paint a picture, this book isn't going to do that, but it is going to go directly to certain topics like what's the halting condition of Marxism or in particular critical race uh, theory uh, there's a, a big distinction between classic Marxism because they talk about the emergence of Bolshevik man and that is what we would call a halting condition in, in uh, the computer world uh, Dennis,
0: can you tell me how people can find these books?
11: Uh, yes, either Defiance Press or they can go to my uh, personal website libertyreads.com
0: Mark Edge, Free Talk Live here at uh, Freedom Fest, and I've got one of the one of the speakers, Max Borders. Uh, Max, you've been on Free Talk Live more than once. I see you've got a uh, a new website here, and I want to talk to you about it.
12: Thank you very much. Basically, the website is just the vehicle for for all the books I like to put out.
0: <laughs> I know you are such a content producer, and um, you know, great for the the liberty movement. So um, the website is social dash evolution.com. That's social dash evolution.com. Speaking of books, what do you got going on? My latest book is The Decentralist,
12: Mission, Morality, and Meaning in the Age of Crypto. Now, crypto is a the theme of the book, no doubt. And I'm really happy to have that as a peg, particularly given everything that's going on. We're going through another crypto winter right now. Um, I assume some of your listeners are going to be into crypto a little bit. But the the thing about The Decentralist is I really wanted to write Something and take a chance With something like a secular scripture For the decentralist movement And those are are people who are into decentralizing power In all conceivable ways So I don't want to hawk a book too much But I will say this Crypto enthusiasts are aware of the degree Of scammers and bad actors in the space And I really Have believed and I believe that To some degree Satoshi Nakamoto Who really was the The Gutenberg of, of crypto uh, also had a moral mission or mission morality and a sense of life meaning because of this. So I really wanted with this book to, to, to bring that to bear because not only are we seeing that the state and this sort of authoritarian arms race between left and right is, is, is not causing people to embrace moral thinking at all. It's causing people to be more... It's, it's getting them... Pulling, pulling them into these partisan tribes in which they are at war with one another, essentially. And you're willing to parcel off and sell off your moral convictions a little bit at a time in order to win against the other side. We've got to, within the crypto movement in the decentralist movement, create a moral high ground. And that moral high ground starts... With some of the traditional thinking of 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 people who listen to this, listen to this podcast, and that is that you um, you start by uh, excising compulsion from your life, but you don't just do that by personally. Although that's where it starts, and I and I really, and some some listeners might find this a bit cultish or weird. This is what I was talking about with taking risks with this book. I believe we kind of need to kind of we need to form something of an ethical cult around moral practice. So I appeal to some of the Eastern traditions in the idea of practicing morality. In a lot of ways, I think uh, classical liberals, libertarians, and anarchists uh, kind of pay lip service to, to abstractions without really practice. So you'll you'll hear about some people talking about the non-aggression principle, or the or Mill's harm principle, or some of the other sort of libertarian basic ideas, but they, they tend to live in abstraction land. And part of, the par- part of the impetus behind this book is that we need to make our, moral, our, our morality, our worldview a daily practice. I enumerate, for example, six moral spheres that we need to uh, adhere to and practice those daily actively as if we were practicing jiu or practicing yoga, or any other kind of practice that allows you to become excellent in some way. We need to be excellent in in our uh, the way we show up in the world. And that's the
0: I, way it I agree completely with what you're saying, and um, I, like I think that there's. Like one of the places that the state centralization or whatever it is gets its foothold is if you paid five thousand dollars for a um, uh, an NFT of a smoking gorilla um, or whatever it is that you you did. And that five thousand dollar NFT is now worth five hundred or fifty or I don't know why anyone would pay for it. Nothing, you know, whatever it is, it crashes in value to zero Um Whatever the situation uh, might be, it's going to feel like, you know, we need a little regulation in here. This is how this is how they get their foothold. Now, um, what we have with financial institutions and banks currently is uh, corruption on an industrial scale. It looks different Than the corruption that exists in the crypto sphere, but it's no less corruption than anything else. When you've got, you know, teams of brokers, of salespeople selling the thing that is most benefits uh, the bank, uh, the investment bank or whatever it is, that's no different. It's just, it's just corruption, but it's a different sort of corruption. It's the corruption that's allowed by the centralized system. Um, And and so we libertarians advocate for a buyer beware uh, scenario, but once you create a playground for uh, you know corrupt people to rip people off you know all the corrupt people that are going to rip people off are coming into that playground so um, and then and then the playground isn 't much fun to play in anymore and we advocated on free talk live we 're the first media in the world to talk about Bitcoin the first you know we beat out uh, everybody else just because a caller happened to call in and we 're decentralized in that nature but um, I think that decentralization needs some kind of reign. And I think I don't know how to describe that. I don't know how to say it, but it, it doesn't feel like the solution to everything. So what I, what you're talking about this, uh, what you called a, uh, a moral cult around it, I think that it makes sense. And I think we do need to practice these things. This, this is the guide. It sounds like it's uh, giving a guide for um, the, the practice that libertarians should have. What are these six principles that you're talking about?
12: That's a that's a great question. I appreciate you asking it. Um, quickly to enumerate them, the first one is going to be nonviolence, right? Uh, in the Eastern traditions, it's called ahimsa. We call it aggression, whatever you whatever you want to call it. But the idea, the way we upgrade that is to to think of it as an active daily practice. So nonviolence and thought, word, and deed. It, it's easy to think violent thoughts about people. Um, it's easy to 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 say disparaging things. So to reorient ourselves around nonviolence we need to do it inwardly too. So this is about an inward turn as well. It's really about about uh, making positioning ourselves and showing up in the world as beings where we radiate
0: peace. We don't just talk about it, we radiate it.
12: And I think that's
0: important. So in Quakers, which I am, we have a testimony called the peace testimony and I think that and I often call Quakers proto-libertarians because they came up with these principles um, early on. So let's go to number 2.
12: Number 2 is integrity. This is being a person of your word, being true to yourself, and being true to others, right? Integrity, the word integrity, we we sometimes think of systems as as having integrity. They hold together. The way we talk about integrity is is, is in in terms of truthfulness. um, Is it it necessary and is it true, the words you you speak? So if you're going to say, I'm going to show up and and do Mark's, Mark's show at a certain time, I'm going to show up and be there at that time. That is the way society holds together because we have expectations of each other, and we, in order to build a societies of trust, we need to. That is built on top of integrity. So that's the second one, The second major one.
0: Yeah. So uh, again, Quakers have the uh, the in in their testimonies. They have honesty or integrity is another one. Another thing I like to say that goes with integrity is doing the thing that you say you're going to do by the time you say you're going to do it, and if you can't. For whatever reason, this happens every day, all day, um, you clean it up. So, you know, if you're going to be late for an appointment, we've got cell phones. You can, if you're going to be five minutes late, let them know.
12: Exactly. Exactly. Little simple things like this. People don't realize, you know, the smartphone era has sort of made it such that we're having generations of people who, and I'm not trying to sound like an old guy. I just happen to be one. But we're having generations of people who think of, 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 of all their relationships and of all of the, their agreements as being somehow contingent because they have this phone. Uh, but we need to return to integrity. I know we're running out of time. Let me quickly go through the rest, the rest of these. We have compassion. We need to look out for each other. No doubt about it. There's a, there's, yeah, there's virtue in selfishness, but there's also virtue in, in seeking out how people are in pain and how we can relieve that pain without making them dependent or without making ourselves uh, um, stratified society in that re- regard.
0: Max, if other people, if people want to find out about the uh, the rest of these testimonies or uh, these points, they're going to have to find them in the book. And the book name of the book is, and tell them where to find it. Right on. Uh, best place is Amazon. Still giving Je- Jeff Bezos my my little
12: pound of flesh. It is the decentralist, and hopefully our listeners are decentralists. The subtitle is Mission, Morality, and Meaning in the Age of Crypto
0: author is max borders if you don't know his name you need to go online and start searching because uh he's prolific and uh you know a great libertarian thank you max Mark Edge, Free Talk Live, coming to you from Freedom Fest. Managed to grab Chris Rufer from the Foundation for Harmony and Prosperity. And I had a chance to talk to you yesterday, Chris, and I I like the philosophy you have. It seems to me that uh, that you're, you're trying to spread something here that's going to really catch fire in people's hearts. Well, I hope so. Bottom line is, I, we call ourselves a libertarian group as a
13: party of principle, but I think that the features that are... That are um Identified today as uh, the, quote, principles of, of libertarianism are basically features of libertarianism. So I've identified uh, what I think to be more fundamental than that. So a fundamental
0: principle of how, of how humans should relate. So I'd like to hear those principles. I really do. I like the non-aggression principle as an idea, but I feel it's a foundation, not a place to... You know, it's not complete, I I look at principles in two forms. So one is principles which you and I would would
13: use and everybody uses in their lives. We make decisions on what those are going to be. And it could be I'm going to eat breakfast every morning. That's going to be part of my health program. It could be that I'm going to drive white cars because they're the safest. Because I'm going to return phone calls and and my, my mail. I'm going to be responsible on those lines. Those are principles which you personally identify that you're going to use. They're foundational statements which you use to live our lives. And they're great. But there's another term or concept on how you can use the term principle in the form of uh, like gravity. So you get natural world out there and there's things there that we can't change. So versus principles that we can identify and state that these are ours, they are changeable. But you can identify a principle in nature like gravity or the way chemicals react versus temperature, et cetera, we can't change those. We can't pass a law in the city council to say, well, this weekend we're going to have a fair and so there should be no rain. Right, that's a
0: natural law, basically, or something to that effect. It's a a natural order. Yeah,
13: it's it's a natural law. So I've uh, looked at a few things, the three basic things about human nature and pieced those together to what I consider a principle, which is pretty recognizable, but the ramifications of
0: it, I think, are more uh, radical but interesting so what are those principles, and what are the ramification, the radical ramifications? I'm curious. The, uh, well, number one, it starts with uh, uh,
13: three, what I call axioms. So the first one is, I believe people, their fundamental mission in life is to be happy. Now call it fulfillment, call it well-being, live a life of well-being, but it's principally, I just say, happiness uh, as, as a term. It's not a giddy kind of thing, but a lifelong Feeling of satisfaction—that's what people want. People want to be satisfied.
0: I a hundred percent agree. Um, the the focus of Free Talk Live for twenty years has been uh, liberty, but I'm coming to the conclusion that you must pursue happiness at the same time. We're only here for a short period of time, and um, you know, the, if you're not happy, then then what? Well, it's all about happiness. What
13: what are we here for? What are we, what are we doing? Why why do we have uh, bacon versus uh, toast at, at breakfast, or why do we have cereal versus eggs? We do every single single thing in our lives. What glasses we. We choose what clothes we wear to bring us a little bit more happiness, at least our drive is to do that always doesn 't end up that way, but our drive is to be happy and I think it 's universal among human beings and even sentient uh, animals and whatnot so what 's the next principle? so the next axiom to drive a principle is that uh, so that 's what human beings want is to be happy now now you get into social philosophy, basically, what principles can we use, what characteristics of humanity can we identify that affect each other that will affect our happiness? So, two things. So, you've got, uh, what can one person do vis-a-vis another person? So, one thing you can do to another person is physically harm them. I mean, you physically touch them, right, in a way that you intend to harm them. So, then I'll ask, well, how many, does that increase your happiness or does it decrease happiness? Most people, sometimes after a while, but they'll recognize that, yeah, that decreases my happiness, no question. And then the question is, all every time... And you have to resolve, basically, most virtually everybody resolves it. Yes, every time. Can you imagine a moment where somebody aggressed against you and they physically harmed you where you'd be happier? And people say no. So I think that's a a universal action and reaction. Action is you physically harm someone, they are less happy. So that's axiom two.
0: So now, also, you're less happy when you harm somebody because the, the consequences in modern society of using uh, violence adult on adult is not going to be real good for you as the uh, aggressor. Now, I, I think that's true. People don't really want to harm other
13: people, and they feel good when they help other people. But the real point is the physical action of harming and what the reaction is relative to what humans want, which is happiness. The, so the third axiom is, is along the same lines but relative to property. So peop- you know, your property is stolen. Well, are you happier or less happy? And people are less happy when their when their property is stolen. So, then you could say, well, how can you give me a, a, a an example of when you are happier when somebody's stolen? Well, then you can, get, well, my daughter says, well, there's this junk in the garage that I really didn't want, but they stole it so I was happier. Well, come on. That really wasn't your property to speak of in a sense, but I think people know what I mean.
0: So that's the third axiom. I think it'd be rare that one is uh, robbed, burglarized, stolen from, or whatever the terminology is, and then they're going to be happy. But I get it. There, is some, there, are, some things, there are some things in my life that probably should just go. <laughs> yes. but it, yeah,
13: I mean, the definition of property, we can argue all over the place is, to some degree. But uh, stuff you really don't want is probably not what you really consider your property. But anyway, so you have these three uh, characteristics or three things we can observe in, in humanity. And they're really ingrained in us biologically, if you want to get that deep to it. So we want to be happy. From a social relationship, other people, we decrease their happiness if we, if we physically harm them. We decrease their happiness if we steal their property. The point is, it's a principle, and it's a principle of human nature, and you can't change it. So this, this principle works every single time. So it's like gravity, you can't change it. So once you can get to understand what I mean by principle in a sense that it, when you can identify something that's hardcore, it's hardwired in nature, you can't change
9: it.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. You cannot change that. So um, what is the uh, foundation for harmony and prosperity doing to bring this uh, revelation of yours uh, you know forward? I think it, I think you're accurate. I I wouldn't doubt it. I think we've been uh, you know Libertarians have been doing a lot in the sphere of politics, and that this will, this is something one can implement in your life. You can be happier now. Yeah, I think it pertains to your
13: personal life in one way. But the radical part about it and what people, what it shows, I believe that as a principle that's really founded in, in nature is that when you look then at, and that's a social philosophy, it's how we should work together, and that's how we do work together. Everybody has those principles in their personal life, or they wouldn't have friends if you go around harming other people. So we have to live by those principles. The difference now is you get to this concept of government and coercion, and ask yourself, what law that government passes does not backed up with a gun, or the threat of it? Well, it's hard to think of any. So when you recognize that the concept of government is the use of force, to get things from other people or to get people to do things we want them to do. When you can equate that carefully, and one can clearly, well then, well how much government do we want? You want zero, back to the zero, you want zero coercion in your life. So it, it just resolves that we shouldn't be having government, we should be relying on ourselves. So the philosophy of human respect, which the foundation promotes, is basically that we should be doing what we want in our lives and we, whether it's we drink Coke or we do this... To the degree that it's on our own, we should be able to do anything we want, constrained by that that basic moral principle that we don't use force, physical, we don't initiate physical force against other folks, and we don't take their property, we don't steal from them. If we live by those two principles, then life is fine. Then when people get along, we live in peace, harmony, and we advance our prosperity.
0: So what's the foundation doing to advance prosperity in that way? Like, are, are you working? I, I, I just don't know. What are you working with? Uh, how, how are you making it happen?
13: You know, it's probably me constraining things. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I, I do the writing and the theory. But the, uh, it's advancing things for whatever we can. So we're coming up with things. We're young. So it's, uh, we've got a crew of great folks that are working on these things at a booth here at Freedom Fest. So it's a start. So it's advancing philosophy, so how do you communicate? So it's communicating through different ways that we can think we can communicate. So whether that's through social media or visits and and visits with people one-on-one, it's whatever we can do to communicate the philosophy as other people communicate the philosophy.
0: So I remember... It's probably been five years now, Um, kind of swept through my little corner of the libertarian universe was something called nonviolent communication. And I think that this is kind of something similar in so much as it's an education organization to teach people how to communicate with other people, how to interact with other people. And it was really exciting there for a little while. I I felt like nonviolent communication was made by somebody who uh, perhaps didn't entirely share my uh, belief system, but you do. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, no, we, uh, I mean, there's
13: ramifications to this that are, that are uh, more than just there really shouldn't be others' government. But we, so it's a governance system that you have a, a, the opportunity to do what you want in life, but you're constrained by these morals of not using physical force and stealing property. So it's a governance system. I mean, how do birds and squirrels live out there without government? They seem to do quite well. It's just amazing, and it's just silly. I uh, remember just growing up, and a lot of boys in my neighborhood, I had zero girls. But, you know, mom gets, get out of the house, get out of the house, and we find each other, kids, and we play basketball or, or ride around together and play games and whatnot, totally organized by 10-year-olds. So we really don't need much supervision here in our lives, and people live their lives very well, on their own, if they take personal responsibility for them. And I think that would advance our society
0: quite well. Chris Rufer, Foundation for Harmony and Prosperity. How can people find out more?
13: Uh, We've got a website. We haven't got a lot on it. We're we're really working on that. Uh, So we've got some, we got a website and it's harmonyprosperity.org. But there's not a lot on there. We're figuring out how to do things. We also, with us, we co-work with the Advocates for Self-Government. And uh, we have another uh, one or two uh, projects in line, but uh, but we're getting things figured out, so we're fairly young in this, but
0: we want to get things together and and then get moving. I love the Advocates for Self-Government at advocates.org. Thank you very much.
14: Thank you. Hey, you are going to love the movie Victimless Crime Spree. It's hilarious, heartwarming, and carries a ton of inspiring freedom messages. Feeling down about the lack of liberty in your life? You need to put on this film with some friends and have a good laugh. It's a true story about me and my friends in New Hampshire living free, singing, dancing, and getting arrested. Of course, it's all on video, and the bad guys, the cops, judges, bailiffs, and sheriffs, they all play their part like it's out of a movie or something. You would think we scripted the whole thing, but it's real life. Go ahead and have a watch, and if it's been a while, have another look. I guarantee you'll notice things now that you didn't notice before. And the best part is that you're going to walk away feeling a renewed sense of your own power. You are the master of your destiny, and you will be free in your lifetime. Victimless Crime Spree.